Um, if you have your Bible, I tell you to open it to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, as you do so, I do want to make a couple just kind of thank yous. Uh, thank you for those who helped us at the Scarecrow Festival. Uh, we had a really great time out there. We saw a lot of different people. Uh, we made, I don't know how many bags of popcorn. Somebody may have counted that at some point in time. Uh, I will say that that gym floor was covered with popcorn by the time we left. So for those of you who work at the high school, um, if that comes up or you find one of those somewhere, make sure they know we're sorry about that. Uh, but we had a great time, got to meet a lot of folks and had a lot of good help. And of course, Sunday evening, wow, you know, um, Fall Fest couldn't happen without our church family and how much they, how much they do and how much um, you, you love and pour into our community. And so uh, always blown away when we have the opportunity to love our community. Um, I just, I, I always, I think, you know, I don't know that we can do it any better than we just did it. And then our second Fall Fest here, uh, we, we blew it out of the water again. And so uh, excited about the ways that we get to love and serve and, uh, and be a part of this community. So uh, thank you so much for that. Of course, thank you all for appreciating us well um, a, a, as well. Um, our staff certainly feels very loved here and uh, very appreciated, and we couldn't imagine uh, serving anywhere else. So anyway, I just wanted to express some thanks and gratitude and uh, just thank the Lord um, for what he's been doing, and, and we pray that. Uh, he continues to do that. So, Second uh, Corinthians, we're going to spend uh, a little bit of time uh, in the writing that, that Paul did to the church at Corinth. I feel like it's been a while since I have shared on a Wednesday night, although it really hasn't been that long, I guess. But since then, uh, we've read few, through a, a few different books in the New Testament. In case you're new with us um, or, or uh, just new to our midweek time, possibly, we've been reading through... Uh, the, the main or major portions of the Bible together as a church. Uh, we've been doing a Bible reading plan called the F260 plan. It is a 260 day out of the year reading plan. So that's where the 260 comes from. I think the F is for foundations because we're covering kind of the foundational pieces of the Bible, even though we're not reading every single piece of scripture. Uh, but we've been reading that together. And so each week on Wednesday nights, I've been choosing different passages from what we've read just to kind of go a little bit deeper together and maybe seek out, not just in our own time with the Lord, but together, uh, kind of seek out maybe how the Lord is challenging us. And so, you know, since the beginning of the year, we've worked our way through the Old Testament. Of course, we've been into the New Testament. We've read through the Gospels. And, uh, and now, of course, we're journeying through the rest of the New Testament, really in light of uh, Paul's missionary journeys in the book of Acts. And so we've recently finished the letters to the Thessalonians. Uh, we've read uh, more of the end of the book of Acts. We've read the first letter to the Corinthians. And as of today, if you're caught up on your readings, we have finished the second letter to the Corinthians. But before we move on from the church at Corinth and what Paul wrote to them, uh, I wanted us just to look at 2 Corinthians, a portion uh, of chapter number 5 together tonight. Now, I was thinking about uh, this scripture tonight as I was just kind of reading and the Lord was just kind of showing me a few different things. I couldn't help but process it a little bit through the lens of school. Now, that may not mean that much to you. It may have been a while since you've been in school. Uh, but for me, uh, as many of you know, school's become a little bit more relevant in my life because I have started going back to school. Uh, whenever we moved here, I had started my uh, D-Men project. So in ministry, there's pretty much two different 
uh, doctoral degrees that you can get. Of course, I guess there's a few others, but there's two primary ones. There is a PhD and several different, you know, emphasis of uh, ministry. And then there's a doctorate of ministry, which is a little bit more practical. It's not a research-based degree. Instead, it is a more practical ministry side degree. And so that is what I started when I was at Petal Harvey. It typically takes about three years to complete the uh, DMIN degree. Uh, two years are your seminars and workshops, and then one year for this particular doctorate, instead of a research or a dissertation that most people think of with a doctoral degree, for a DMIN, you do a dissertation type paper, but it's actually called a project. So instead of just research for the sake of maybe this might happen at some point in time today comparative to something that's happened before. Like for instance, a research paper for a PhD, if I was gonna do it on the New Testament, it might be um, how Paul's missionary journey through Corinth relates to our missionary efforts in Saltillo, Mississippi. And I might research all of what Paul did, the strategies that went into place, uh, the, the language, the events, the culture, and then research our uh, context as well and make comparisons to how that might look. Now, I know that sounds extremely boring to you. Here's the truth. That sounds extremely boring to me as well. That's why I'm not a PhD student. Mine, however, is this. I will research a field of ministry and I will create a project for my current context that will implement whatever that particular ministry model might be. Now, for me, I have always been passionate about disciple making. Now, not just in the sense of, you know, preaching the gospel or door-to-door evangelism or uh, theology classes or all the things that you might think of when you think of things like discipleship. I have always been passionate about disciple making. From the moment that someone doesn't know Jesus to the moment that someone is ready to help somebody else become a disciple, a disciple maker, that has always been a passion of mine. I work, my brain at least, works through systems. And for me, I feel like if you have the right system, you can make the right product. Now, I know that's more business-minded and church is a little bit different, but for me... I think disciples haven't been made as good in the context of most churches because a very simple reason, there's no system in place that makes disciples. Instead, we just hope that if we can get people in this building, that will change their lives forever. Well, if that was the case, I would think the church would have been changing a lot more lives. So there must be something missing. And so for me, my project has been this essential disciple-making skills for the local church. Now, when I was at Petal Harvey, that was going to be in the high school ministry at Petal Harvey Baptist Church uh, in Petal, Mississippi. Now that I'm here, it will be at First Baptist Church Saltillo in Saltillo, Mississippi. Now, here's the great benefit of this. When you do a D-Men program at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, if you transition to another church in the middle of your degree program, they say, wait, you must take a year off of school and learn your current context before you can do a project in that area. So for me, I came here, by the way, it's been a year. That was the time that I had to take off from school. That year is over. So now they expect me to go back to school and finish my doctoral program. 
Well, I am at the point in my doctoral program where I am writing my project. I am in what they call the writing phase. And so now I've got a year to finish out the project that I want to design to implement at First Baptist Church, South Tello, South Tello, Mississippi, that helps people make disciples. What are the essential disciple-making skills that our people need to know and be trained in so that they can be disciples who make disciples? Now, I don't know why I'm rambling about that because I'm only telling you that for one reason. I have zero freedom in my life again. So one thing about school to me that I think is interesting, not just for me personally, but I also think about my kids. Before there was school, they could sleep however long they wanted to sleep. They could stay up however long they wanted to stay up. They could go with their mama wherever she wanted to take them to go. They, we could go on vacation any time of the year. We didn't have to wait until school was out or on break, right? They now, because they're in school, just like myself, they've got assignments that are due. They got projects that they gotta finish. They got commitments that they they gotta go to bed at a certain time. They gotta wake up. They gotta be at class at a certain time, right? Like in their lives, as is mine, this is why it's relevant to me, because right now my life is about to change again. Because whatever little bit of freedom that I thought I had to do whatever I wanted to do, it is about to leave me because when I have free time. It's going to have to go to my demon project so that I can finish that thing and somebody can put a dirt in front of my name and everybody can call me Dr. Dan from now on. <laughs> okay, not really, but in my life, this is particular, particularly relevant because all of us understand that school brings a lot of changes to people's lives. Whether you're starting back, and there may be some of you in the room right now that have went back to school. Maybe, I don't know, somebody in here right now is going back to school or is considering going back to school. Or you remember what it was like to be in school. Or you got children who are starting school or grandchildren who are starting, whatever the case may be. We know that there are a lot of things in life that change when we go to school. But here's what we also know. There are a lot of things in life besides school that also bring major changes. For me, School is the one that is most relevant because I'm going back at this time. But for you, it might be some other big change in life that has impacted you the most. It might be a death in the family that has completely turned things upside down. It may be moving to a new place or location or, 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 or job. It may be graduating high school. Maybe that was such a huge impactful moment for you. Getting married, having your first kid, getting older, not being able to do all the things that you once did, getting a new job, COVID. That was one that popped in my mind when I was thinking about things that have made obvious, massive changes on our world. Obviously, this list could go on and on and on depending on who is talking about their life and depending on who is talking about the changes that have made such impacts. Certain things in life, just like school, bring changes to our lives. And personally, I think following Jesus might be the biggest one. Following Jesus brings a lot of changes to our lives. In fact, I, I, I wrote this down. Disciples of Jesus will experience changes that make them more like Jesus. What's interesting about the life change that following Jesus brings is that it never stops. You never outgrow 
Jesus changing you. You're never too young for Jesus to change. You're never even a season of life where Jesus isn't changing. You're never apart from the fact that God wants to make you more like his son, right? You don't take a break from that. You don't go on vacation from it. You don't retire out of it. It will forever be a part of your life. God changing you to make you more like Jesus. And honestly, I saw this best when I was reading in 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, very famous passage of scripture. I'm going to start with verse 13. Here's what Paul writes. He says, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, verse 16, Therefore we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling, to the, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So I'm reading this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, very familiar passage of scripture, one that many of you have memorized, verses in there that you have shared and quoted and heard from people over and over and over, and I'm reading about the newness, I'm reading about the old life going away, and I'm thinking about all the changes that Jesus brings into our lives. And this is what happened for me. I noticed that the Apostle Paul keys us into several changes that take place as we follow Jesus. Here's the first one. Jesus gives us a new mind. A new mind. When we became a follower of Jesus, when we became one of his disciples, he began to change the way we think and see. He began to give us a new mind. Look back at verse 13. I want you to see what Paul said. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Now some of you may have some other translations of the Bible in here. The phrase, we are beside ourselves, literally means to amaze. That's what the phrase means. If you were to look it up and click on all five of those words, they would all have the same word that would come back to you. It would be the word to amaze. 
Now, the same words used to describe Jesus in Mark chapter 3, verse 21. I think this is interesting. Here's what it says. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. This was the description of Jesus by his family and closest friends. You say, Danny, when it says he is out of his mind, what's the word that's used? It's this same word that Paul, in, in the, the letter to the Corinthians, is translated as, we are beside ourselves. Because, here's why I think Paul uses this word. Same thing for Jesus, by the way. Because of what Jesus was teaching and doing, his family thought he was crazy. Because of the changes that Jesus has brought in my life, there are some people who are close to me who have also thought that I was crazy. They thought I was, as they said about Jesus, out of my mind. Now, for those who have other translations in the room, I prefer how the New Living Translation deals with verse number 13. Here's how it's translated in that version of the Bible. Here it is. If it seems we are crazy, it is to bring glory to God. In other words, my craziness is for Jesus. All right? And if we are in our right minds, it is for your benefit. In other words, it does not matter whether you think I'm crazy or you don't. You think I'm crazy? Glory to God. You think I'm good? Great. Your life will change because of what you see Jesus doing in me. Now, the reason why I think Paul uses this phrase is because he knows that what he's about to say to them might seem a little crazy at first. It might seem like they're out of their minds, but they're not out of their minds. In fact, they've received new ones. You say, Danny, how? Well, let me show you a couple of these. A new mind, particularly for us, that Jesus brings, changes the way we see our purpose. Paul uses the phrase, if if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Why is this the change of his purpose? Because maybe before, Paul's life was about him. I don't know if you've read about Paul's story. You can read more about it in Philippians chapter 3. But here's what I will tell you. He thought everything was about him. Now, I don't know if there's anybody else in the room who can connect with that. But I can tell you right now, every morning I got to get up and I got to look in the mirror and I see the same person looking back who is dominating for the control that the Lord has of my life and his name is Danny Boudreaux. Why? Because I always want to put me first, right? My purpose initially, right? My sinfulness, my nature wants everything to be about me. You know what Paul, you know how Paul described that? When he was writing to the church at Philippi, he said, I count all those things that I once thought were so great about my life, all those once known purposes that I thought I existed and lived for, he says, I count them as poop compared to knowing Jesus. Why? Because when Jesus gives us a new mind, we see our purpose. And guess what? It's not about me. It has everything to do with Jesus. Let me show you this too though. A new mind not only changes the way we see our purpose, it changes the way we see our priorities. 
It changes the way we see our priorities. Look back at verses 14 and 15. Real quick, look at them with me. For the love of Christ controls us. By the way, I want you to see that priority there. Not me, not what I want, not my desire, not my ambition, not my dreams. Here's what controls us. The love of Christ. Because we have concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And if he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now, I don't know about you, but this is a huge change. The new mind that Jesus gives us helps us to see his desire for our lives as the greatest priority that we can possibly have. This is why Paul put it like this. Those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him. Your purpose is way bigger than you could have ever imagined and ever dreamed it could possibly have been. Your dreams were way too small. God had something way bigger. He changes the way you see your purpose. Can I tell you something else, though? Your priorities can no longer be about what's best for you. They are now about what's best for Jesus and how his name can be made Famous. Why? Because that is my greatest priority in life. It is all for the glory of God. Let me show you this too, though. A new mind changes the way we see our purpose, changes the way we see our priorities, but a new mind also changes the way we see people. Look at verse 16 again. Don't miss this. From now on, therefore, from now on what? Well, because Christ died for me, and now I no longer live for myself, but I live for Jesus. So, so from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. You say, Dave, what is Paul trying to communicate? Well, the new mind that Jesus brings obviously keys us into a new purpose obviously keys us in to better priorities and it obviously keys us into the fact that people are his mission there is no greater priority than to bring glory to jesus there is no better way to bring glory to jesus than to love people there's no better way we no longer judge people outwardly a new mind changes the way we see people Outward circumstances no longer determine our estimate of anybody else. We now see them as someone for whom Christ died. Paul makes an interesting statement, by the way, in this verse when he uses the phrase, we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. There's a lot of speculation on what Paul might have meant by this phrase. It could mean that Paul knew Jesus before he met him on the road to Damascus. Now, not knew him in the sense that he followed him, but knew him in the sense that Jesus was not uncommon to him. As a matter of fact, you may or may not know this, but Paul was a student. He was a disciple and apprentice of the great Jewish rabbi Gamaliel. Some people call him Gamaliel, but I prefer Gamaliel because it sounds more distinguished. During the time that he studied under Gamaliel, he lived in Jerusalem and certainly would have heard of the fame of Jesus. 
There were lepers outside of the camp who talked to nobody who heard about Jesus. Obviously, an apprentice of a great Jewish rabbi heard about Jesus. Jesus also met people in secret, right? John chapter 3 keys us in on this when Jesus met with another prominent Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Paul himself was a prominent Pharisee. It is possible that he too had some secret meetings where he got to speculate about who Jesus was. Also, it's very possible that Paul could have witnessed a miracle. He could have even heard Jesus teach. Do you know how many times the Pharisees and Sadducees were there when Jesus was speaking? Why is it crazy for us to think that maybe the Apostle Paul was there? The young apprentice under Gamaliel, hearing the words of Jesus himself. <clears throat> Could also just mean a mental image of Jesus that Paul, and of course others, had of Jesus based on the outward criteria such as this. Typical pharisaical thoughts about Jesus. You ready? Listen to it. What kind of Christ would befriend publicans and sinners? Not my kind of Messiah, right? What kind of Christ would gather around him such a collection of ignorant nobodies from Galilee like the 12 disciples? Not my kind of Messiah. What kind of Christ would come from Nazareth? Nothing good comes from Nazareth, not my Messiah. What kind of Christ would allow himself to be beaten, arrested, bullied, and mocked, by the way, without defending himself at all? Not my kind of Messiah. What kind of Christ would allow himself to be crucified by the dirty Gentiles? Not my kind of Messiah, not my King of Kings, not my Lord of Lords. It's possible that Paul knew who Jesus was, and in fact, most likely, way before he ever surrendered his life to Jesus. And let me tell you something, it's probably that Paul had a very, very ugly opinion about who Jesus was. Why? Because he judged him according to the flesh. What does he mean? According to a human point of view. This is not the guy I was looking for. Can I tell you something? Paul would no longer look at anybody that way anymore. I think this is a good way to think about the change that happens when we become a disciple of Jesus. We no longer look at anything simply from a human point of view. We see things through the lens of our relationship with Jesus. This is the type of new mind that begins to change in us when Jesus grabs a hold of our lives. Can I ask you a couple things before we move on? Probably looking at your outline going, Danny, where are we going here? Let me just ask you a few questions. How has your purpose in life changed since you started following Jesus? How have your priorities changed since you started following Jesus? How has the way you see people changed since you started following Jesus? He gives us a new mind. Let me show you the second change that Paul keys us in on. Not just a new mind, but Jesus also makes us a new man. Jesus makes us a new man. Now, for all you women, I just man fit with mind. See, so I mean, you can put woe man in there if you want, but W messes up my system, all right? <laughs> 
man is like a like a plural Spanish kind of man. You know, it just means everybody in the room. You know what I'm saying? Jesus makes us a new man. Let me show you a couple things. I want you to see the reality of this change in verse number 17. Look at this one. This is one you know very well. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, this is the same thing that Paul's already mentioned in verse 14 when he used the phrase, therefore, all have died. What is he trying to say? What he's saying is that when we follow Jesus, the old life is dead and a new life is born. In fact, listen, the reality of this particular change is seen in two really massive ways. Let me show you the first one. We become God's property. Now, for those of you who need a little bit more political correctness with this, I apologize. You no longer belong to yourself. You are God's property property. You belong now to him. This is why he uses the phrase in verse 17, if anyone is in Christ. We are no longer our own. When we surrender our life to Jesus to become his disciple, we do just that. We give up our life so that he can live in us. We now belong to him. The phrase in Christ, by the way, it's one of Paul's favorite expressions in the New Testament. It's found in several different forms, but it appears about 130 times in the letters that he wrote in the New Testament. The concept, though, is not new to Paul. As a matter of fact, he got it from a better source. Anybody want to guess who the source was? Jesus is always a good answer when someone asks you something at church, all right? The better source that Paul got this from is Jesus. This is from John 15, 5. Listen to it. I am the vine... You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Belonging to Christ or being in Christ, as Paul would word it, is more than just being a part of a group. It's a lifestyle that we live out every day, affecting everything that we do. As a matter of fact, there's an Old Testament story that gives us an awesome picture of what it means to be in Christ. It's the story of Noah and the ark. Listen to this. When Noah and his family stepped into the ark, they were separated from godless, worldly people outside. They were supplied with all that they needed, and they were secured against any storms of judgment that overtook the outside world. They went through the judgment, but no water fell on them. It only fell on the ark. All that it meant for Noah and his family to be in the ark is what it means for the disciple of Jesus to be in Christ. Now just let that, let that thought, that picture of the ark, let that reign in your mind for just a moment. Can I tell you something? You may think it's about a big boat. You may think it's about God punishing the sins of mankind. You may think it's about a prominent, faithful family. And listen, all those are themes in the story. But can I tell you something, friends? Noah and the ark, the flood, it's just a picture of the beauty of provision and protection that we have in Christ. He is the perfect ark. 
against the flood that is the judgment against our sin that we will not have to pay. Why? Because we're in the ark. We are covered by the blood of Jesus who paid the penalty, who took the judgment, who the storms beat against. Why? So that they did not have to beat against me and against you. In Christ, we become God's property. Let me show you this one too, though. Notice, in the reality of this change, we become God's property, but also, I don't know if you like this or not, but hopefully, we become good people. You say, Danny, i got to be a good person to know Jesus. No. Do i got to be a good person to go to heaven. No. Do i got to be a good person to have a relationship with Christ. No. Being good has nothing to do with your relationship with Jesus. You get Jesus because He's good. But because you got Him, He begins to make you good. This is why Paul uses the phrase, the old has passed away. One thing we often misunderstand about becoming a disciple of Jesus is that He didn't simply give His life for us. He gave His life to us. There's this misconception that to be a Christian means I get to go to heaven when I die. It's not a misconception. You do. But if you think that's it, then let me tell you something, friends. You miss the treasure. The treasure is not heaven. The treasure is Jesus. And listen, you don't have to wait for heaven to get Him. You can have Him right now. I had a friend one time ask me, Danny, what if you could have everything you ever wanted in heaven, but Jesus wasn't going to be there? Do you still want it? I had to say, you know what, man? I don't know. Until we treasure Jesus like that, we will continue to misunderstand the reality of the change that He wants to bring in us. We become God's property, but we also become good people. We should be the good people that Jesus' life represented as He walked on this earth. Let me show you this other one, though, too. Don't just notice the reality of this change. I want you to notice the reason for this change. Look at back at verse 18. I'm, i, I got to go to hyperspeed, but just look at this. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. And don't miss this. This is something that we know, we've heard, we've been preached about, we've, we've lived for years and years and years, but never take for granted that the only reason for the new life that we can have through Jesus is because of the grace and mercy of an amazing God. has nothing to do with you, has nothing to do with me. Matter of fact, it was this mercy and grace that was willing to spare an entire nation if good people could be found in Genesis chapter 17. It was this mercy and grace that led the stubborn and hard-hearted Israelites out of Egyptian bondage. It was this mercy and grace that spared Nineveh when Jonah told them about God and they repented of their evil ways in Jonah chapter 3. It was this mercy and grace that Ezra praised as she thanked God for not punishing them as they deserved. It was this mercy and grace that saved a sinner like Paul. It was this mercy and grace that sent Jesus to die for you and for me. This is why Paul wrote, all this is from God. His mercy and grace, because of it, we have been brought back to him through Jesus. This is the only reason we can have a changed mind and be a changed man. Let me show you this last one, though. Because Paul keys us into one more thing. Because listen, I think we're all good with our minds changing. 
I think we're all good with our, with our person changing. We want to become good people. I think this is where we struggle the most. Can I show you this? Look, Jesus also wants to provide us a new ministry. It starts through our personal reconciliation to God. Look back at verse 18 and verse 19. He said, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Listen, the beauty of what Jesus has done rests on the fact that Jesus reconciled us, you and me, to God. As a matter of fact, one of the best pictures of this is in Luke chapter 15. I don't have time to read it, but the story is really always worthy of our time, even though we don't have it. The story is about two boys and a father. The story is about an inheritance that one of them can't wait for. In fact, he abandons his own family, takes what is his, wastes it and squanders it in a, in a foreign land. The other brother stays home. He's the good son, works with his dad, stays at the farm, does everything he's supposed to do by everybody else's standards, right? One day, the other son loses everything he has, and he wakes up and goes, you know what? Let me go back to my dad. Even his, even his servants are treated better than I am. And so he gets home expecting to work in the stables, expecting to have a pathetic life, expecting to live out in his own family as their servant until... The father runs out and meets him and throws a robe on him and a ring on his finger and, and, and parties. Because the one that was lost has now been found. Right? So many of us in this room, that is our story of reconciliation. We were the dummy who squandered everything, but God opened up his arms and received us as the good father that he is. But please don't miss this. There was another brother in the story. And though he seemed like he had everything together, what we discover is one gave up everything in riotous living. The other one gave up everything in self-righteous living. Right? Both of them were equally in need of the love of the Father. One of them was, one of them was bogged down by harlots in a foreign land. The other one was bogged down by hypocrisy in his own heart. Both of them needed love. Both of them needed saving. Both of them needed the good father. Some of you in here, you're like that prodigal son who wasted everything and you got this crazy story about how you went from rags to riches all because of the king of kings. Praise God. Some of you in here are like, Danny, you don't understand. I've always done what was right. I've always made the best decision. I, I haven't really had much of a change. Can I tell you something? You were like that other son. Sure, you stayed under the roof. Sure, you made the best decisions that you could, but can I tell you something? You were still lost in need of Jesus. doesn't matter where your story is. Everybody needs reconciliation. And our new ministry that God provides us with begins with our own personal reconciliation. Jesus gave it all for us. God accepts them both through reconciliation as he does us in this room. Let me show you this other one, though. It provides us a new ministry through our reconciliation, but also through our responsibility. This is where it gets a little bit more pointed. You say, what's our responsibility? Well, the first one is our appointment as ambassadors. Look back at verse 20. We're almost there, by the way. Stay with me. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He has given us 
the task, literally the ministry of reconciling people back to him. He calls us ambassadors because we are simply visiting this earth. We are pilgrims passing through. We're from another place. We are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of heaven. But like any other ambassador, he has sent us here to be a representation in a foreign land, to be a representation of our home, right? How are we being ambassadors in a land that so desperately needs Jesus. Let me show you this one too, though. Not just our appointment as ambassadors, but our appeal as ambassadors. This is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I don't know about you, but I can't think of a greater appeal to the responsibility that we have to the new ministry that God has given us of reconciliation. You say, Danny, what is it? Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice for our sins so that we could know God. This should be the greatest motivation for us to share that with others too. You realize everybody else is where you were before you knew Jesus? You realize everybody else was as unworthy as you are? You realize everybody else couldn't earn it either? You realize that they did absolutely nothing just like you did and God still loves them and wants to change their lives forever? This type of motivation, those of us who were sin, made Him to be sin so that we might become good, that same thing is true for all people. As a matter of fact, there were various offerings required under Old Testament law. Two of them taken together help us understand the meaning of this verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. The sin offering and the burnt offering. Now listen to these. With the sin offering, all the sins of the sinner were symbolically placed on the offering. Sinner, sin on the offering. But with the burnt offering, all the goodness of the sacrifice was symbolically transferred to the sinner. So in the sin offering, you put your sin on them, they die in your place. On the perfect spotless lamb without blemish, its goodness was given on you so that you could have that righteousness and then that animal was burnt and consumed by the altar so that you could have that goodness. It was symbolic of the transfer that was happening. Now, on the big day of offerings where all the Jews would worship and offer sacrifices together, we know this as the Day of Atonement, the priest would also have what is known as a scapegoat. The scapegoat would take the sin of the people on it and then leave the city much like Jesus was when he was crucified outside the city and all our sins were placed on him. This is why the hymn writer put it like this. All our sins were laid on Jesus. Jesus bore them on the tree God who knew them laid them on him and believing we go free. What kind of changes has Jesus made in your life? What kind of changes are happening because of Jesus and your commitment to him? Can I tell you something? Everything changes. What about you when it comes to Jesus? Has your perspective of the world changed because you see as God sees? Has your life changed? Have you experienced new life that Jesus brings? Have you embraced the ministry that God has given all disciples? What does Jesus want to change in you? Can I tell you something, friends? He wants to give us a new mind. Can I tell you something? He wants to make us a new man. Can I tell you something else? He wants to provide us a new ministry. The gospel does not stop with me. It came to me to go through me. 
And I pray every day that I get into the Word until it gets into me so that people's lives are changed because of Jesus. What kind of changes is Jesus making in your life?